Well, why don't we get started, and uh, I'll open our time with prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this book, for the promise that it will be blessed if we read it and we hear it. And so we pray that you would bless us through our study of it, that it would be profitable for us, that it would glorify you and be an encouragement to your church. Forgive us of our sins and help us as we need it, Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last time we were going through the seven seals, so we've been, it's been a while since we've met because we had some time off for for Thanksgiving, but we're, we've been going through the seven seals, and we had said that if you think of a scroll, beautiful, um, with a seam on it, and you know, seven seals, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that you can't unwind it and read it until you've broken all the seals off of it. So we, we covered the breaking of the first five seals. So the first four were what? What happened when the first four seals were broken? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we call them, right? Then the fifth seal was broken. And what happened at the breaking of the fifth seal? Yeah, chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each, oh, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so we had five so far, and we're still needing two more to be broken before the scroll can be unwound and read. So the first four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are kind of apocalyptic and grim in a lot of ways, right? Talking about judgment that was coming. The fifth was kind of encouraging, a remembrance of the martyrs who are in glory and who are waiting for the glory of the Lord. So it's setting us to be up to be very interested in, in what's going to happen when the sixth seal is broken. Are we going to see something like the four horsemen come through? Are we going to see something like the martyrs in heaven? Uh, what are we going to see from the sixth seal? And the sixth seal is, is, the big, is one of the big scenes in this breaking of the seals. It's really shown to us in three scenes as the scroll is broken. Um, we have three scenes of what's going to happen as a result of the breaking of this scroll, the opening of the scroll, and the unwinding of these things. So in the first scene of Revelation, on the sixth seal, we see that judgment is indeed coming. Um, there, there's the promise of judgment revealed when this seal is broken. The second scene, we'll see that the full number of the elect are gathered to salvation by God. So that's another thing that we see happening when the sixth seal is broken. And then in the third scene, we see how the saints of God will be glorified in heaven. So there's a lot that happens when the sixth seal is broken, a lot going on, and a lot to meditate on. Um, and so what this is really showing is the sixth seal is an answer to the prayers that were offered in the fifth seal. So as these seals are broken and the fifth seal is broken and the martyrs cry out for God how long, in many ways the opening of the sixth seal is an answer to their prayers. 
um, God is showing what will be in response to the prayers that have been offered uh, by the saints. And so we read these various scenes as the sixth seal is broken. Um, And so that's what we want to think about as we read from God's word in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And this is what we read. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Um, This is clearly a picture of final judgment, right? This is not any kind of preliminary judgment. This is the final judgment that comes on the earth. It's a judgment that all will have to face. Um, it's a judgment that's coming whether you're a king or whether you're a slave. Um, it's, it's comprehensive in its scope. Um, and this, this is a picture of final judgment. And one of the things that, that's important to note when we think about this is for people who really want to take Revelation literally and see it as chronologically unfolding and saying, no, everything has to happen in a strict chronology. That's problematic when you read the sixth seal because this is nothing other than final judgment. Um, and if, and if, if that was true, that you were to read the book of Revelation chronologically, then the book would end here because this is the final judgment. And what, what this shows us is the, the book of Revelation is not to be meant as a strict chronology that we read as an unfolding, but it's, it's what we've continued to say it is. It's a recapitulation. It's the same picture seen again and again. Right? We've used the image of a football game or a baseball game when you see a replay and you see a different angle of the same thing. Now, sometimes we don't immediately recognize it as a different angle on the same thing. Um, you may, maybe you've been watching the game with friends and people aren't really paying attention and then they walk into the room and they go, yeah, we just hit a home run. Like, no, this was the home run in the second inning. We're still behind by six runs. Um, if you're a Padre fan, you're always behind, even if something good happens. Um, so you, you're watching and you say, oh, that's great. It's like, no, that's, that's what happened before. We're just seeing it from a different angle, right? Sometimes you get the picture from the outfield and you see the home run sort of coming towards you. Sometimes you get the camera behind the hitter and you see how far he drove it. Um, sometimes you see, you know, the pitcher's reaction as he throws the pitch and then he hangs his head. Um, this, is, this is what happens. That's what happens in the book of Revelation. It's showing the same story, the history of the church from beginning to end, history of the world from the first coming of Christ to the second, but just from different camera angles. That's why the book doesn't end here, even though this is clearly a picture of the final judgment that's coming at the end. And so we, we know that the book is not just meant to be read chronologically. It's meant to be told in scenes that tell us particular things and that are focusing our attention on what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. Just like all those different replays in a game focus our attention on what the director wants you to see. 
right? There's someone in the control room saying, all right, let's, give, let's get the outfield shot. Now let's get the, the behind home plate shot. There's a director who's directing it. The Holy Spirit is the director in the book of Revelation. He's telling us where to focus as we go through. And as the sixth seal is broken, the first focus is on the judgment that's coming, uh, the final judgment that's coming at the very end. Um, and the final judgment will be described from another number of different perspectives um, in, in the scriptures as we go along, especially in this, in this book. And so this is a picture of that final judgment, the first time we're seeing it, um, being told in images that should be familiar to us from the scriptures, right? There's, there's something that happens with the sun, right? There's a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood, right? We, we've heard those kinds of images in scripture before. Um, in fact, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24. Um, immediately after the tribulation, he says in verse 29 of Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Right, that's what Jesus said would happen. And now as Jesus breaks this seal, we see a picture of that happening. Yes. Am I basing from Revelation 6, is it a picture of final judgment, or is Matthew 24 a picture of final judgment? Well, I'm saying when you read this passage, because this, this revelation is a huge thing in Arminian uh, teaching, so <laughs> this scripture to make it clear for, for total understanding, did you make that, that this is final judgment based on other scriptures that you've read? So, in other words, sure. How, how did you come to this conclusion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. How do I come to this conclusion? Um, my dad said so. Um, so remember, we're going through his book on the Revelation. Okay, that's that's a that's not the right answer, right? But the the question is, as we read through all of Revelation six in this scene, can this be anything but the final judgment? Um, can this be? Can can we think of a way that we could conceive of this as being something other? than the final judgment? Or is this what scripture tells us to look for in the final judgment? Um, and I, I think if we consider this as a whole, we're, we're going to say this is what scripture has told us to expect in the final judgment, right? Because it's hard to see a picture of a judgment that's coming where the sky vanishes like a scroll, every mountain and island are removed from its place, everyone hides themselves and says, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne for the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Right? That, it's hard to conceive of that being any day but the final judgment. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say what, what kind of judgment could be that kind of judgment apart from the final judgment. When, when, the, when the Lord is seen in his glory and the wicked of the earth 
want to be hidden from the wrath of God that's come. Um, I, I think that can really only be the final judgment. So from, from reading it and from reading what other scriptures have said about the final judgment, I think this is clearly a picture of final judgment. Because you're right, there are people who want to say this is something other than that. The seven, that's how I understand dispensationalism too. Yeah, the seven years of whatever and the three years of whatever. Um, but yeah, I think, and that's why we have to let Scripture speak and we have to say, now what, what have we been taught in Scripture that these are pictures of? When the sun is darkened and the, and the moon becomes like blood and the stars fall out of the sky like a fig tree when its fruit is shaken off of it um, by the wind. I mean, these are images of cataclysmic destruction. Um, and and as, as we see different perspectives on this as we go on in Revelation, that will only confirm that this is a picture of final judgment. So I think this is using the prophetic language of final judgment. Jesus is even using the prophetic language of final judgment. And in, the, and in Matthew 24, what he's trying to do is differentiate between the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming and the final destruction that's coming. Um, and saying this isn't the great day of wrath, but there's a day of judgment coming on Jerusalem, and there's a final judgment coming, and don't mistake the two. Um, That's part of the difficulty as we go through Matthew 24, because Jesus says a lot of things, and what is about the end, and what is about the destruction of Jerusalem. But clearly, he's trying to say, some people will tell you that's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. You won't be able to miss the end of the world, because things like the sun going out, the moon becoming like blood, stars falling from the sky, the clouds being, you know, the sky being rolled up as a scroll. All of that will be impossible to miss. And that's why everyone on earth who's not in step with the Lord in relationship with him would rather have rocks fall on them um, or to be swallowed up by the earth than to face the wrath of the one who's coming. Yeah, so that's how I think we, we find that this is a picture of final judgment. From, this is clearly how the scriptures have taught us to see about um, the final judgment. Mountains and islands displaced by a great earthquake and the unbelieving world even realizing that wrath is coming upon them. I mean, that's part of it is that the whole world recognizes this is the wrath of God. It doesn't really matter who you are. You're recognizing this as the wrath of God coming. And it, and it comes to all regardless of your station in life. It falls on all unbelievers. So it doesn't matter if you're a king of the earth or a great one or a general or a rich or powerful um, or if you're a slave. It doesn't, the Lord is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who you are in this world. The Lord is coming in judgment. And, and that all that will matter then is are you a believer or are you an unbeliever? Um, and I think there's a particular punch in this because as the church is suffering in John's day, as it's being persecuted, who are by and large the persecutors of the church in the world? The kings and the powerful ones and the rich ones, the people who are so much not like the people that are in the church. Um, I, so I think this is coming with a particular perspective that this judgment is coming not just um, on all unbelievers, but particularly on those who have persecuted the church, um, who have rejected the Lord and, and rested on their own wealth or their own wisdom or their own station as being enough in life. Um, And it's easy to think you're high and lifted up in the world until you see the one who is high and lifted up and then you realize where you truly stand. I think that's part of what's being communicated. This is the prayers of the righteous being vindicated. 
How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood on the earth? Uh, that was the prayer of the martyrs. Um, and now as the, seventh, as the sixth seal is open, that begins to happen. We see that judgment coming um, on the earth and particularly on those who persecuted the church. So that's the first scene we see is judgment. The judgment of the wicked. Um, and then the second scene is a much brighter scene. It's the salvation of all of God's elect. Um, so the, 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 still the, the, the scene of the sixth seal being broken, say that ten times fast, um, this scene continues, but it shows all of the elect being sealed uh, for salvation. So judgment's coming in that first scene, but the second scene begins in Revelation chapter 7 and runs through verse 8, and this is, this is a happier story about the fate of the elect. So we read in chapter 7, verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Okay, so this is the second scene, the sealing of the people of God. Um, and it's, it, it begins with this beautiful picture of there are four angels who represent the four corners of the earth who've been given the authority over the wind that's going to come and destroy the earth. And they are in the process of holding back those winds. Um, and we have the explanation of why they're holding back those winds. Because uh, there's another angel who's ascending from the rising of the sun, coming from the east, with the seal of the living God, telling them not to harm the world until God's people have been sealed. So these angels are holding back the winds of destruction, because that's clearly how these winds are represented, right? That, that they'll give, they're given power to harm the earth and the sea. So it's this wonderful picture of these winds that are going to sweep over the whole world and angels who are commanded to hold them back from sweeping over the whole world until God's people are sealed against the harm. Um, it, it's a wonderful picture of God protecting his own before the wrath pours out on the world. Um, there's to be this wonderful sealing of the servants of God. Um, and, and we're given this angel explaining to us why this restraint is needed. Uh, so that these winds will not be released to sweep over the earth. Um, so that the elect can be gathered first and sealed against that, that destruction that's coming. Um, how long before you will judge the earth and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
Um, And so the whole martyr throng has to be gathered until the number is complete. And here we have a complete number um, being sealed and saved. And so the elect are gathered. That's what's being pictured here and sealed against the wrath that's coming. Um, protected from the wrath that's about to fall on the whole world from the four corners of the earth. Um, so that's, that's the big picture of what's happening here. Of course, the questions that we need to sort of ask is, what does it mean to be sealed? What, does it, what, is, what is being gotten at there that we're going to be sealed? Um, and, and what does it mean, who are these servants that are sealed? Because they're represented to us in Old Testament terms. Right, and, and with a very specific number. Right? So those are the questions we need to ask. What is, what is this seal? What are we talking about here? And, and who are these servants? Um, well, the seal is a symbol that's not really explained in any detail. Right? We're not told much about what this seal means. And so people have asked, what, what, what do we think of this seal? Where do we see seals in Scripture? Where might this be? Uh, the, the image that's being drawn on because it tends to draw on images from, from the rest of Scripture. Um, one, one good suggestion that's connected with the forehead because the seal goes on the forehead. And then the question is asked, well, where, where did anyone wear a seal on the forehead? Um, and people have looked back to the high priestly garb where the priest wore a headdress and on the headdress or the, the miter was a seal that said, holy to the Lord. Um, and that part of his ministry as high priest when he would wear those robes was to go into the Holy of Holies and he needed to be sealed on his forehead as holy to the Lord as he walked in to the holy place to do his ministering. Um, and so some people have suggested that's where the image is being connected to the seal that was on the, the high priest's forehead that said holy, holy unto the Lord. Um, and that that might be the picture that's going here. And so that might be the symbol that God's people are being sealed as being holy unto the Lord. And that that's what keeps the wrath of God from sweeping over them as it kept the wrath of God in a symbolic sense from sweeping over the high priest when he entered into the holy place. Why could he enter in there? Because he was holy unto the Lord. Um, And that's what this sealing here represents. Um, And sealing, of course, is ultimately described to us in Scripture as the work of the Holy Spirit who seals his own for himself and seals them as no longer being part of the world. Right? That we we say that that sanctifying work of the Spirit um, that we see affected in God's people is to seal us apart from the world as belonging to him alone. We're set apart from other people in the world and identified as his people in the world. Um, that's why we, we call our sacraments signs and seals. Um, they're things that seal, that signify that we've been set apart for the Lord. Um, and that's probably, you know, most closely related to this might be an allusion to baptism. Uh, that also might be what the picture is here of how God's people are sealed in baptism and identified as belonging to him. Um, and, and so we can see that being the Holy Spirit's work, um, an external work that, that represents an internal spiritual reality. That just as the water of baptism identifies us externally as belonging to God, that's an inward reality that's affected by the Holy Spirit who washes us with the blood and spirit of Christ. 
Right? And so this, might, this is probably what this sealing is representing. God's people are being identified in the world as being holy to him and not to be considered with the rest of the world or to be touched by any of the judgment that's sweeping over the world. Um, and that's a wonderful thing to think about for God's people. That when we see these pictures of wrath that are going to be grim and frankly kind of frightening in the book of the Revelation, that the promise of God is true, that when the waters rise and when the fire sweeps over, it won't touch you. And why won't it touch us? Because we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been identified as not belonging to this world, but as belonging to the being citizens of heaven. And citizens of heaven don't need to fear this judgment that's coming because it's not a judgment that has to do with them. It's a judgment that has to do with the world. And so this is a wonderful picture of the sealing of the servants of God from the judgment that's coming. And that even with this terrible judgment that once it's unleashed is unstoppable, it's this wonderful picture that the judgment can't be unleashed until God's people are safeguarded. Right, that even these angels that have the power to destroy everything on the earth and in the sea, they are incapable of acting until God's people are protected from that. And so when we see these pictures in Revelation of you know, the whole world falling apart and, and, the, and the world saying, when the wrath of God comes, who can stand? Right, the answer is, who can stand? Those who've been sealed by the Lord. Those who've been sealed by the Lord have always been those who are immune from the judgment that comes. That was true of of believing Noah and his family who were sealed up in the ark and were delivered through the judgment. That was true of the people of Israel who were sealed as being God's own and passed through the the Red Sea on dry ground when their enemies were consumed behind them. God has always delivered his people in this way, through the judgment. Sometimes God's people would like to be delivered from the judgment. We'd like to be kind of pulled out so we could just watch from a safe distance. But that's not the way God has saved. The way God has always saved is through, through the disaster. And so when the fire comes, it consumes everything. When this judgment falls, everyone's saying, the great day of the Lord has come and who can escape his wrath? It's those who've been sealed as holy to the Lord. It's a great comfort for us, isn't it? To know that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment has no power over you. There's nothing to fear. What's a great and terrible day for the wicked is a great and glorious day for the righteous because we've been sealed and we'll be delivered through that judgment. Now, I keep saying we, you'll notice, um, and then we have to ask the question, how do I know that I'm included in this list of people who are given here? Because it's not many people. It's only 144,000. And they all sound like Israelites, uh, so how do I know that this is all of the church? How do, I, how do I know this is speaking of all of God's people, not just um, a select part of God's people? Um, you know, a literalist might say to me, well, you know, you're, you're, you're making a lot of this, but verse 4 says, um, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So how, how can you say that this applies to us? Isn't this only for Old Testament Israel? Isn't this just clear Old Testament Israel language? Um, Yes. Very good. Yeah, there is scripture that says we've been grafted into Israel. Um, so there, there is an answer. I was, I have an answer too. Um, I wasn't just going to bring up the question and just leave you hanging. Um, 
But no, that's exactly right, right? The sons of Israel is hardly limited in Scripture. Um, the Scriptures do say that those who believe in Abraham, as Abraham believed, are true sons of Abraham. That's the true Israel of God. Um, and of course, the, in one sense, the true Israel of God is Jesus. And so everybody who's been engrafted into Christ has been engrafted into the true Israel um, of God. And so this is representing all of God's people. And someone who would say, well, this is just clear Old Testament language that we would just recognize from other places in Scripture. How could you say this applies beyond the Old Testament of people of God? Is because this is not, it might look at first glance like typical Old Testament language, but someone who really knew their Old Testament well would say, what's up with this list of 12 tribes? Because they would say, look who's first. Judah's first. Now, this is going to really show people's Bible knowledge. Where was Judah in the birth order? Fourth. I heard somebody say it. Give yourself a gold star, whoever did. Judah's fourth. Who's the oldest? Reuben. Right? I heard someone say that too. Um, Be bold. Right? Um, Reuben's first. Then Simeon and Levi. And then Judah. Well, who's first in this list? Judah, and then Reuben, and then where are Simeon and Levi? They're way down in verse 7. Okay, so that's strange, that there seems to be a reordering of tribes. Um, It's also strange in that Manasseh and Joseph are mentioned. Right, we expect to see Manasseh and who? Ephraim. Right? Those were the two half-tribes. They were the two sons of Joseph. Okay, who's missing? Dan. Dan, right? So this is not, you all did very well there with your Bible knowledge. Kudos. Um, so we can't look at this list and say, oh, this is just the, the 12 tribes of Israel language. There are tribes that are missing. There are tribes that are reordered. Um, there are tribes that are mentioned that aren't mentioned elsewhere. And I think there's a theological reason for that. And I even have a handout with a chart. Um, So if you would take one and pass it around. I think I have enough for everyone easily if you just take one and pass them back. Um, I think this is meant to clue us into something else is happening than just Israel here. Um, Something else is going on beyond just seeing Israel here. Um, Who are these servants of God? Um, I think these are still being pictured, the souls under the altar were asking the question, when will the number be complete? When will the number be fulfilled? Um, And we have what's here, a perfect kind of number. It's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Um, it's, It's a perfect kind of number. It's a number of completeness. And what we've seen already from the numbers in the book of Revelation is that they're symbolic. Um, that 144,000 does not mean there are only 144,000 saved people. 144,000 is a kind of perfect number. Um, that it, every tribe is 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's the perfect number of tribes. It's that number of completion repeated three times. Excuse me. There's this wonderful picture of completeness in that number. Um, And the the renumbering of the tribes, I think, tells us important things. Um, And I included what Dr. Johnson says about 
those numbers. So he gives the chart, which hopefully shows how people have been reordered, and reminds us that these, these were not all children just of the wives, but also of the concubines. Remember that Leah and Rachel did not get along, and they were trying to upstage one another. And that's, that's kind of what kept coming out in the, sadly, in the birth order. It kind of showed the dysfunction of their family. That they would say, okay, now I have a kid. All right, well, now I have a kid. Oh, well, now my, con- my concubine that I gave to Jacob has a kid. Well now, well, now mine has a kid. And that all of these kids come about through that kind of, in the midst of that kind of one-upsmanship going on. And so what is happening as this list is brought here and reordered with a theological purpose to say particular things about children and about the head of the family. And I love what what Dr. Johnson says in his book, Triumph of the Lamb. He says, the following changes in the order from Genesis 35 explain the order in Revelation 7 in harmony with the theology of Revelation as a whole. Who is first? Right, Judah. And what does Dr. Johnson say? Judah is promoted from fourth position to first as the tribe of the Messiah, Jesus. That's what makes Judah first, is that Christ, the king, comes from Judah. Right? Um, The sons of the concubines, technically slaves of the competing wives, Leah and Rachel, pressed by their mistresses into service as surrogate mothers, are promoted from the end of the line to the positions three through six, above six of the sons of the wives, Leah and Rachel. The elevation of these descendants of women who were outsiders to the covenant family signifies the inclusion of the Gentiles among the bondservants of our God. Dan, however, is replaced by Joseph's son Manasseh because the tribe of Dan became notorious in Israel's history for leading the northern kingdom into idolatrous apostasy. And in intertestamental Jewish literature, that tribe was associated with the Antichrist. And so I really like how he ends this. Thus, the order of the tribes in Revelation 7 symbolizes the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the incorporation of outcasts, and the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community that God shields from his terrible wrath. Just by the way John presents this, he says beautiful things about what typify the people of God. They're led by Christ, Outsiders are included, and idolaters are excluded. It's a people that includes Jew and Gentile. It's a people that includes all that's holy and right, led by Christ, but excludes all that's wicked. Um, it's, a, it's a picture not just of perfection in number, but perfection in leadership, perfection in composition, and perfection in worship. It's a perfect people from start to finish, from top to bottom. This people that's been sealed holy to the Lord has been made holy to the Lord by what he's done. Yes? It speaks of that election as well. Right. Yeah, it speaks of election as well. That's always been God's perfect plan. Because again, what had the prayer of the martyrs been under the fifth seal? They'd been told to wait until the number of their fellow servants had been complete. And here is a beautiful picture of the answer to that prayer. The number of the fellow servants 
has been completed. And so the second scene we moves from the judgment of the wicked to the sealing of the righteous and then to the glory of the saints in heaven. That's what we read from Revelation 7, 9 through 17, um, verses that are really precious to us. Um, but what do we read in chapter 7, verses 9 to 17? After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the, th- before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of, their thro- of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Right, this is the saints in glory um, being pictured, uh, the whole glorified saints. Um, you see why as we move from the, first, from the second scene to the third scene, we have to see that number as um, symbolic. Right? Because John is looking at the same scene, but he doesn't see 144,000 people. He sees a multitude that no one can number. And he doesn't just see the tribes of Israel. He sees a people from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Um, It's the same people, again, just seen a different way. Right there it was seen as the perfection of the people of God in sort of Old Testament terms, refashioned with a theological purpose. Now it's the, the, the full magnitude of the people being seen from another perspective as a great multitude that no one can number coming from every tribe and people and nation and language standing before the Lamb um, and before the throne. Show that the waiting of the saints comes to the end both with the destruction of the wicked and the glory, the glorious gathering of the church. Um, this is the fullness of the answer to the prayer that the saints made in under the fifth seal, that the martyrs were crying out for. Um, this, is, this is the full glory of that answer, the heavenly picture of the redeemed in glory. Because all the redeemed now are where we saw that picture before. Right? We're, we're brought back into that previous picture where there was a throne and the lamb um, where there was the four living creatures and the elders, right? We're being brought back into that heavenly throne room, except that now that heavenly throne room is also filled with this great multitude that no one can number, right? The saints have been brought into the throne room of their God. Uh, that, that's the glory of the picture uh, that's being seen here. So 
Again, this is the importance of the book of Revelation. The images are being carried forward through so that we see the, the importance of what we've seen before matched to what we continue to see added to it. Uh, that this great picture is now of the throne room is now filled with the people of God. And it becomes clear that all of this judgment and all that was happening in the seals as they open is to carry forward the purpose of God to reach this point. To save the elect and to bring them into glory as one great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Um, It shows the glorious work of God. That even when the martyrs cried out with their prayer, not really understanding why there was this delay, now here's the explanation of why this delay was made uh, until the number of the elect would be gathered. Uh, the The scene is one of intense worship and thanksgiving. Right? So there's this great multitude crying out with a loud voice. Right? So it's a great multitude. It's, already, it's a big choir already, and it's a loud choir. Right? So th- this praise is intense. It's big. Um, it's the kind of praise you hear from a, a wonderful choir, choir that really belts it out. Um, it, it's a wonderful picture of, of praise, of a kind of intensity that we can't really imagine. Right? The, the, the choir is the whole church from every age from the starting of the world to the end, all crying out with a loud voice in praise of God. Um, it's including all the angels in heaven, right? all the elders. This is a huge multitude crying out. Um, it's a wonderful thing to think about the glory of the praise in heaven. Um, and there's a, this interesting exchange between John and this angel, or John and one of the elders, Um, In verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from wherever they come? Um, And it's kind of a strange dialogue, right? Because he says, why are you asking me? You know, I don't know. Um, John is like us. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You tell me, right? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Right? Who, who, were, who were given white robes under the fifth seal? It was the martyrs asking for the, the deliverance of the Lord. And what were we told about them? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Right? And so now they come, robed in white. They, they were told to rest a little longer until it was finished. And now here they come. And, and what is the implication? It's finished. Everybody's gathered. Um, now you can come into your rest with everyone else. They washed their robes, they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Um, How long? Just a little longer, and then rest. And maybe a rest even greater than they could have imagined as souls already in heaven. Right? There was even a greater rest to come in the resurrected gathering of the elect. Right? That, That saints in glory might be crying out, how long before 
you, you judge and, the, and it all becomes final, but the glory, the further glory is even greater. Right? They were at rest, and now they're in this kind of rest. They were in a glory under the altar. Now they're in another kind of glory. Right? The kind of glory that's wonderfully pictured here in all of these wonderful phrases that are so precious to God's people. Uh, to go from being martyrs to being those who are protected and at peace before the throne of their God. Um, it, it's a glory far beyond what they could have, what all of us can really even imagine. They've come through the great tribulation. Uh, and, and this is why it's important to listen to the book of the Revelation and to see how these themes are interconnected and not you know, on their own, isolated, because what do people do? They come here and they go, okay, now what is the great tribulation? Who are these people? Where does this come from? Right? Well, these are the same people who appeared under the fifth seal. That was their tribulation. They were killed for the testimony of the blood of the Lamb. This is not some independent great tribulation or another kind of great tribulation that's coming. This is just the great tribulation that the saints face in this world all the time. Yes? No, it is, I think it is the whole elect. But as part of that whole elect, the specific mention is being made of those who were under the throne who are now coming in so that we see them highlighted in a particular way as being part of that great multitude. Yeah, so thanks for the clarification. Yeah, they're part of the whole group, but I think they're being independently highlighted so that we see their prayers have been answered and they're being answered here as they come in. Um, I think it's also important to to note that I think when martyrs are spoken of in, in the fifth seal, that that's again a way of thinking about the whole church. The whole church suffers for the sake of the name. The whole church bears witness. That's really what martyr means. It means a witness. Um, it came to mean a witness who dies for the faith because those witnesses died in witnessing for the faith. And so through time, that language took on a particular meaning. Um, to me, not just witnessing, but bearing witness by your death. Um, that's why John says they're martyrs who died for the sake of the name. They're witnesses who died. Um, and I think martyrs doesn't just mean people who were executed in this life for the faith that would appear like in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The, the whole church can be described as a martyred people who bear witness for the sake of the name and die for the sake of the name. That's how the whole church is being considered. So I don't even think under the fifth seal that means just to say the particular people who, like Stephen, died because of the gospel. That the whole church, in a sense, are those who have borne witness and who have been killed all the day long for serving the Lord. Um, that the, the whole church is, is being described in this way too. So I don't even think in the fifth seal, to answer your question, I don't even think that's isolated to the martyrs. I think that's the whole saints there too. Yeah, so I think this is the whole saints, the whole multitude, and this multitude that comes in is still a picture of the whole um, as one. I think that's the, the theme that runs through. So yeah, thanks. That's, that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yeah, the, the age between Christ's first coming and his second is the great tribulation that the church faces. Um, there is no sort of event that's a great tribulation. There are greater times of suffering and challenge in the church, but we see that throughout the whole history of the church, that there have been greater times of trial, and that it comes in different perspectives. But you lo- you're losing the sense of reading the scriptures as a whole if you take this great, great tribulation and then rip it out of its context and try to postulate a kind of tribulation that it's talking about that's disconnected from what's already been said. Because this is within the seven seals still. Remember, don't forget the beautiful picture. We're still in like the, the picture of the seven seals. And so this is all still internally co- consistent. We're not looking outside of, of this section to look at another kind of tribulation and work our way in. This is just clearly from the reading. There was a tribulation referred to in, in five and a prayer about that tribulation. And as the sixth seal gets broken, that tribulation gets figured out. And the saints are delivered through it and the saints are brought in to glory. Um, and so the tribulation that we came through, we saw that with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We saw the, the saints in the fifth seal talking about that tribulation. And now we see people delivered from the great tribulation. We shouldn't wonder, now what is that? We just go and say, well, go back to the four horsemen. That was great tribulation. That was the tribulation that faces the church in all ages, whether it's sword or death or disease or famine, whatever it is, that's the great tribulation that the church faces. And who have been delivered through the great tribulation? The whole church. Um, so rather than try to figure out you know, what event in history constitutes the great tribulation and when will the church face it and how will we be brought through, this is just saying the whole history, sweep of history. Right. Yeah, if you're, if you're thinking that only some future great tribulation is coming, you, you sort of do, I think you're right, diminish the tribulation that the church has already faced. And what Paul is saying is, this is in a sense filling up the suffering of Christ. Not that he left anything undone, but Paul talks that way, that we're filling up the suffering in his body, that we're still the body of Christ, and we're still, he's suffering with us and in us and through us in this world that our suffering is not disconnected from our Lord. It's an interesting way that Paul talks. Uh, We might not want to talk that way because we'd be afraid that we're going to make some theological confusion, but Paul doesn't have any trouble saying, no, Jesus' suffering for our sins is over, but he still suffers with his people in this world, and he's coming for his people. This is still his body in the world, after all, of which he's head. Um, And he's coming again in glory to take care of those who are suffering. And so this wonderful scene of of thanksgiving, ending in this wonderful poem of praise for God, um, is, is here this picture of the glory that's come to the church, that those who are alienated from the thrones of the world now stand before the thrones of their God. Uh, those unfit for service in the Roman Empire now serve in the heavenly temple. Um, those who suffered deprivation in the world are now fully satisfied and at rest. Those who may have felt abandoned by God or confused by his ways and now know and see the shepherd who always provides um, life for them. And those who wept in earthly suffering now have every tear wiped away. This couldn't be a picture of fuller glory 
for the people of God and show that it's worth serving God. Um, as as J.C. Rowlands put it, costs a lot to be a Christian, but it pays. Um, and this this passage in Revelation is a reminder that it, it we, it's not that we serve God in vain. There's a glory that awaits His people, and so these are the six seals. So we kind of should be all queued up for what is going to happen in the seventh seal. Sounds like a movie. Um, What's going to happen when the seventh seal is broken? Um, we read that in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1 is all about the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's it. That's the whole seventh seal. This is awkward, isn't it? Because there's been a lot of talking and now it's silence. Lots of people have wondered what is, what is the point of a half hour of silence? Um, and it's, it's notoriously difficult to know. Okay, one, of the, one of the best commentaries to come out has uh, been from Greg Beal on, on Revelation. It's a fantastic commentary. Um, and this is his comment on the silence. Why the silence lasts for about half an hour is not entirely clear. Okay, that's the great commentary. <laughs> Shows that even really smart people don't necessarily know everything about the Bible. Um, why, why the half hour of silence? Like why, silence is, is, you know, what are we meant to take from the silence is one thing. Why for about a half an hour is another. Um, yeah. Why? I have an answer for that too. Um, I'm just trying to build the tension. I'm just trying to build the tension. Um, I don't, do I usually raise questions? I think if you don't, just like go home and figure it out. I don't know. Um, you know, go be silent for another 45 minutes. Uh, you know, but, you know, again, this is where reading it on, you know, it was interesting because, you know, we're going through my dad's book, and so he lays out this whole argument for why the silence for half an hour and says, you know, so many people are trying to get at what is this really indicating. And he said, but we lose sight of where we've been. You know, that, that verse eight, the chapter 8, verse 1 follows chapter 7. And what was chapter 7? It was this unbelievable noise. Right? It's, it's the worship of the whole Church and people of God from every generation crying out with a loud voice, right? So there, there's this roar of noise in praise of God. And if you're already crying out with a loud voice, you can only imagine how much more you cry out when you start talking about the sun won't scorch us, we'll be protected from heat, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes, right? You can only imagine how the crescendo of praise is building in the church, and to have it just be roaring along, and then the seventh seal is broken, and nothing. Right? If you've ever heard the Messiah performed, and you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, right? the Hallelujah Chorus ends with what I think always has to be horribly difficult for a choir director to hope it goes right. Because you have all these voices going, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, right? It's, and it's going along, it's roaring along. But right at the end of that, that chorus, everyone goes, hallelujah, and then there's silence. Everybody has to stop at the right time. And then they come back in, 
with the final hallelujah. I'm going to save you and not sing it. Um, but, but it's that, it, it marches along like that, doesn't it? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then that stop, and then hallelujah, right? It comes in again with that kind of punch. And it punches that way in part because of the silence that goes before it. And what do we know about silences? They can be really long when you're anticipating something else. Right? We know how long time passes, either when you're in the midst of fearful expectation or eager anticipation. Right? How long does time pass when you're waiting in the hospital to hear about how somebody's really serious surgery went? Where you're in the waiting room. How long does that time take? Um, or think, you know, it's Christmas times. So think back when you were a kid waiting for Christmas morning to come. Right? When you're, when you're a little kid, it never comes. You have one of those dumb advent calendars and you're thinking, we're on the 5th? We'll never get to Christmas. Look at all these doors we have to open yet. Right? It just it will never come. When you get older, it seems like it's on top of you in a hurry. But remember when you're a kid and you, you want Christmas to be there so bad, but it's just taking forever. Right? And everybody knew, like, this needs to happen. This thing needs to be cracked open. Everything depends on this. And when you couldn't find someone to open it, everybody's just weeping in heaven. Can't somebody open this? This thing has to be opened. Now the seven seal's broken. It's like, great, this is exactly the thing that needed to be happened. And then there's just a half hour of silence. That had to feel like, John, the longest half an hour. Right? How, how long was I silent? just a while back when it got really awkward. Like, not even 10 seconds, I bet. And it was, like, already awkward, right? What if I'd done that to you for a half hour? Just stood here unexplained. I mean, you'd be calling 911. Like, the poor guy had a stroke or something. I mean, it's, he's just tuned out. Um, or he just didn't do his work, and he left us with a question he can't answer. Um, you know, but, and so that's what's happening here, is, right? This, this has to happen. This thing has to open. And now it's open, and... What, Lord? You know, John just has to be like, what's going to happen now? And I think that's, that's all what's happening here. It's this drive towards what does this, what does this silence mean? What does this silence anticipate? Um, almost everybody who, who has Revelation and they try to make an outline of the book, they have trouble with chapter 8, verse 1. Where, what do we do with this? How does this function? Is it... Is it part of what comes next? Is it part of what preceded it? Where does this... I mean, it's a seventh seal, so it really should go with what comes before, but it seems to be connected with what comes later in the chapter. It's this grueling silence. And I think we're meant to... I think it's right to say we're meant to be brought into John's experience of a half hour of heavenly silence waiting for the next thing to happen. And as John is waiting, that has to be one of the longest half hours of his life, right? Trying to figure out when this is going to happen. And then what comes next happens, right? There, there isn't silence that goes on and on and on. There's silence that goes on for about a half an hour. It'd be interesting to, to have asked John if, without a watch, how long did that silence last? Right? He might have said hours and hours, Okay, so what is the whole point of this? It seemed like a really long time to John in the silence. 
it's not a really long time in the grand scheme of things. It's only about a half an hour, right? So not even a half an hour. Um, I think this is meant to, 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 to strike us with a profound theological truth that in the waiting and in the silence, it seems like a really long time. But when the voice of heaven sounds again, you realize it wasn't really that long after all. I think that's what's being driven at in, in what John sees here. Because what do, what do the seven seals represent? They represent the, the tribulations, the crying out of the saints, the judgment that comes on the world and the glorification of the righteous. And then you have this last seal where there's just silence for half an hour before something else happens. And so spiritually, I think what is being taught to us in this, in this silence, in this movement from huge sound to nothing for a time, is a picture of what the church feels like from time to time in our history. As we live between the great tribulation, as we're living through the great tribulation, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, we can feel like we're living in the silence that never ends. We can feel like we're, we're waiting for that glorious something that's coming, but it's just not coming. And when you're in, in the midst of the silence, it seems like it'll never stop. And it seems like it's been going on forever. Um, until, until the silence is broken, and then you realize it wasn't that long after all. There's a sense in which I think this is giving us a picture of the whole history of the church between the comings of Christ. That it feels like forever since he's been here. And sometimes the church feels like he'll never come. And that we've been waiting a really long time and he's still not here. And I think we're, we're, we're being taught here that, that that is the reality. But the other reality is that once he comes, it won't seem so long after all. Once he comes, it won't seem like he was waiting for so long. Once we see the church gathered in glory, it won't seem like it was such a bad thing to have to wait for to wait for this group to reach this point in this kind of glory with this kind of Lord. Um, I think it's, it's, it's telling us that sometimes life is going to feel like that. The silence that won't end, that's been going on forever. But in the ultimate scheme of things, that won't be how things have gone. Um, that as we wait in the suffering of this world and as we pray and as we wonder how long, the wait might seem forever um, but the end will come. Um, my dad in his book wrote this, Today we live in a silence, not hearing the heavens ring with the praises of God. The wait seems unendurably long, but it will be over soon. Here is a key message of the book in one critical verse. I'm coming soon. The silence is not forever, even though it's going to seem like it in comparison to the volume you just heard. Um, this is how reading the book of Revelation in this kind of way, where we pay attention to its context, to its shape, right, can also help us to understand its meaning and bring what might seem to be a weird and strange thing into our ordinary life and the ordinary experience of John, of John as an ordinary person 
being involved in this extraordinary revelation. Just like what would it be like to hear the whole voice of heaven silent all of a sudden and wait for the next thing? Um, that's sort of where we are. We've seen the, the roar of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, and now he's gone. That's how it feels. And there's a sort of silence waiting for his second coming. And the book is teaching us, it seems like forever while you're waiting, but when you look back on it, you'll, you'll say, it wasn't so long after all. When you finally check your watch, you'll say, oh, only half an hour? That's not so long. Um, that's not so bad in the grand scheme of things. I think that's what the blessing of this cycle is for God's people. To help teach us these important things that the church's suffering is advancing God's purpose in history. The suffering of the church is not pointless. Right? There's a movement in the tribulation through to the glory of the church, the judgment of the wicked, the perfection of all things. God is working out his purposes. He's advancing his purposes in the world. Um, and we have to wait with expectation, but patiently for God to fulfill his purposes. Um, to know that God will do it, but he'll do it in his time. Um, and so that, that, that is kind of the, the, key, the key lesson of this book, that we're to wait patiently. God is achieving something through what the church is suffering. There's nothing in this that's pointless. There's nothing that the church endures here below that doesn't have a purpose in God's plan and a purpose to advance their good and their glory and the glory of the Lord. Um, That's the important thing that we're learning. That's what it testifies to us. Um, And so we can think of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is, this is, in a sense, just the path our Savior walked, right? That he came and faced great tribulation all of his life, especially at the end. But all of his life, he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And that he worked through all of that, and he endured his literal cross, and was even able in that moment to despise its shame because he was looking to the glory that he knew was following after it. To be able to go to heaven and to hear the voice of his father saying to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? To, to know there was a, a crown waiting after the cross. That's what God's people need to be reminded of. Which will help us to endure the suffering and even despise the shame. Because we know that after the cross comes the crown. And as, as I love what J.C. Rowell said too, he said, you know, I think we're, when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll be sort of amazed looking back that we spent so much time thinking about our cross and so little time thinking about our crown. Um, because if we really understood the crown that awaits the people of God, we would be willing to endure the cross to get there. That that was the lesson that Jesus understood better than any of us understand, but the lesson that he left to teach us. There's a crown that follows the cross. And the crown and its glory outweighs anything that we fight here below. The cross and the end will be the, will be the half hour of silence. 
matched against an eternity of glory. And that's, that's when we'll have that eternal perspective to really understand what Paul was saying when he said these light and momentary afflictions, which don't feel light or momentary when you're going through them. When you're in the half hour of silence, they don't feel light and momentary. But when the silence breaks and the glory of God is seen and heard, then you'll realize, oh, that was just slight and momentary and it was preparing me for this eternal weight of glory that is beyond anything I could imagine. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that's what helps us to not lose heart. To recognize that after the cross follows the crown for God's people just like the sun follows, the sunrise follows the night. These things follow each other because God is working out a purpose in history. And he says to us, when we can't understand what's going on or we're saying to him, how long are we going to have to wait for the purpose to be accomplished? He's, you know what? Just wait. It's going to be worth it. I promise you it's going to be worth it. Just wait. You have no idea what I'm planning to do. Um, that, that's really the message of this cycle. And that's where it leaves us leading into the next cycle. Um, so that, that's what's going on in this. So th- this is the glory of, of this particular cycle. That God is, through our suffering, advancing his purposes. And um, their purposes for a glory beyond which we can't, a glory that's beyond what we can really imagine. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the, the cycle, the second cycle of the, of the seals. Um, and then we move on to the, the trumpets. Um, are there any, any questions about that? The silence long enough. Um, do you want to go on and start the trumpets a little bit? How are we doing? Are we, are we tired out? Want to go start? We'll start the trumpets a little bit. Okay. Okay, I'm seeing nods or at least people who aren't openly rebelling. So, um, in the absence, <laughs> okay, it's just you, so we're good. Um, in the absence of open rebellion, we'll move on uh, to think a little bit about the, the beginning of the, the cycle of the trumpets, because there is, the, the silence does last for half an hour, and then there is the opening of the trumpets. Um, so that, this cycle of the book of Revelation is really the third cycle. It moves from chapter 8, verse 2, uh, to chapter 11, verse 19. So this is really the story of the of these this this third cycle of sevens, which is the seven trumpets. It's pretty easy for us to see the seven there. Um, and the theme of this cycle is that the church's suffering in history is less than the suffering of the wicked in history. Um, the church's suffering in history is less than the wicked in history. Sometimes it seems like the wicked don't suffer. Um, Psalm seventy three wrestles with that. Why do the why are the wicked always fat and happy? And I serve the Lord, and it seems like everything goes poorly for me. Um, psalm 73 is a great psalm that kind of captures that up and down that God's people sometimes feel. Why does everything go bad for us, and why does everything go, go well for the wicked? Um, but this, this cycle reminds us that the church's suffering in history is far less than the suffering of the wicked in history. Um, and we see that through these, through these trumpets. Um, and so we can see kind of the introduction to this cycle um, in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 8. So there we read, Then I saw, so after the half hour of silence, 
Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Um, so that's, that's really the introduction to, to this cycle. Um, we have this, this clear picture again, um, drawing on themes we've seen before. They stand in the heavenly temple before the throne of God and before the altar of incense. So this is the same location, heavenly throne room that was described in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. We're brought there again. And into this scene comes another angel who approaches the altar of incense with much incense. Um, and we're, expli- we're explicitly told here that the incense, again, is the prayer of the saints. So this is the second time we've been told this, really just a reminder, that the smoke of the incense is the prayers of the saints. That's how God's people were to think of the incense that burned in the temple and in the tabernacle as smoking up to the Lord. Um, and that's how the prayers are to be thought of, uh, the incense coming before God. Um, and so we're seeing this connection that's been made previously to the prayers of the saints, so we're, we, we see this connection. Um, and again, if we're continuing to follow through the book of Revelation, paying attention to what we've read, we know what prayers we're talking about, particularly here. Again, we're talking about those prayers. How long, O oh Lord? Those fifth seal prayers of the martyr throng. Um, these prayers are coming. And so it, it's a picture of these prayers now coming. Um, and what were those prayers for in part? Not just for the rest of the righteous, but for the judgment of God to be vindicated on the earth. Um, How long, O Lord, faithful and true, before you judge those? Right. So as a prayer for judgment, not in some kind of vengeful sense, but in the sense of wanting the honor and glory of the Lord to be defended. Right. Because when injustice is done in in the earth, the wicked are always saying, where is their God? Right? That, that's the, the tragedy of what we read in Psalm 10. The wicked in the midst of injustice are saying, you know, there is no God. And if there is a God, he doesn't see. And if there is a God who sees, he doesn't care. And that empowers them in their wickedness. And one of the prayers of the saints is for judgment, not, not for revenge, but to say, you know, Lord, they're running you down, down here and saying you're not a God of justice. But as Psalm 10 reminds you, you do see, you hate this, you take it into mind and you will deal with it. The glory of Psalm 10 is it promises God will hunt injustice out of the world until he finds none of it. That's part of what the prayers of the saints have been made for. And so now this angel comes with those prayers, right, um, to, that, to that same altar that the saints were under in chapter 6, verse 9. That's the same altar that he, they, that he comes to in 8, 3. And what does he do? He fills, the, he fills his censer with fire. Um, and then he pours the censer out on the earth. So there's fire poured out on the earth. Now this is connecting that previous scene and those previous prayers with the judgment that's to follow. Um, so as cycle two explained the suffering and glory of the righteous, 
Cycle three is going to look at the suffering and judgment of the wicked. There's that, there's that connection in the prayers. There's also various connections in, we see similarities of form between the second cycle and the third cycle. Um, both cycles begin with four elements of judgment briefly described. Right? What does that mean? Well, it, we began with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right? Um, and we're going to see a similar thing with the first four trumpets that are blown. Um, so there's going to be a connection with the seals and with the trumpets in that sense. Um, both cycles make their meaning and focus clear in the fifth element. Right? So we, we have these, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we're like, what on earth is going on here? And then we hear about the righteous crying out for prayers who've come through that tribulation. You go, okay, now I'm starting to see what, what God's purpose is. And then we see the sealing of the righteous and the, the judgment of the wicked and the glory of the righteous. And so the fifth element is going to help us to be, the fifth trumpet is going to help us to explain what's going on here. So there's a similar form functioning there as well. Um, and in both cycles, the sixth seal and sixth trumpet are divided into really three scenes, a picture that has three important scenes as we went through um, in, the, in the sixth seal. And so John wants us to see these cycles in close association, association with one another. That the seven seals are going to help us to understand the picture that we see in the seven trumpets. Um, and so this cycle is an answer to the prayers of the saints. Um, and the answer is not primarily a vision of final judgment, but a vision of what afflicts the world in this in-between time. Uh, so it's not going to be a picture of final judgment, it's going to be a picture that the, that the, that the wicked suffer in this world. Um, that it, it's, although we feel at times like only the righteous suffer and the wicked don't face any difficulty at all, that's not really true. Um, that the wicked do face suffering in this world. Um, and so cycle two is a picture of the suffering and the the picture of the suffering of the righteous and it taught God's people to wait expectantly for salvation and final judgment. Cycle three focuses on the suffering of the wicked in history. Um, and it teaches us that the wicked suffer not only in the final judgment, but also in this world. Um, that although the psalmist expresses feeling like that at times, that's not the reality. It's not the reality that the wicked don't suffer. And that's important when we feel like they don't. Um, that's one of the, the big questions that the Psalms wrestle with a lot. Is why does it seem like your people suffer and it seems like the wicked continue on just fine? I mentioned Psalm 73. We read in Psalm 73, 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Um, I noticed that no one's going to pay me $36 million a year to be a pastor but they would pay me $36 million a year if I had a really good fastball. Did you hear that pitcher who signed a contract for 30? He's being paid $36 million a year for nine years. Um, I always like to try to break that down in like what you make every two weeks, just to really feel bad. Every two weeks, he makes $1.5 million for the next nine years. I can't even imagine that kind of money. And then there's another guy who pays that guy's paycheck, right? Who owns the team and cuts that check. And he's not their only player. And no one's paying us that much to be Christians. Right? And, and so that's what the psalmist is struggling with. Like, I, like that guy's not in church on Sunday. He's, he's telling the, the slab in a baseball game. 
Um, and he's making all that money. Nobody's paying me $36 million a year to be a Christian. How is that fair? Psalm 73, 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now, I'm not saying Garrett Cole's wicked. I don't know Garrett Cole at all. I'm just saying he's making $36 million a year. Um, but I can't quite see past that. Um, but that, that's how we can feel, right? That it's, it's, it doesn't pay at times, to be a Christian. In fact, it's often the opposite. Um, And this cycle is important for reminding God's people, you know, the wicked also do suffer in this world. It's not true that if you're wicked, you just skate through unscathed. It's not true. Um, It's a big lie of the devil that that you can sin without it being followed by misery. Sin is always followed by misery. The two always go together. You can't separate them. And the Psalms do recognize that truth. Um, Psalm 37, 1 and 2 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Or Psalm 32, 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. The wicked do face many sorrows in this world, many struggles, many sufferings. We're lying to ourselves if we say they don't. And cycle three is going to show powerfully that the wicked do suffer in this world. Um, that he, as much as the righteous suffer for righteousness sake, the wicked suffer more on account of their wickedness. Um, and that's part of what this cycle will be, will be focusing on. That aspect of the reality of this world between the comings of the Lord is that the wicked do suffer in this world. Um, that nobody truly disobeys the Lord with impunity. Not in this life, and certainly not in the life to come. Um, so that's really what this, this cycle is going to be about. So I think that's probably enough. Um, so any questions about that as an introduction? Yes? So 8, 2 to 11, 19, the third cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we're going to look at as the third cycle. So usually the cycles have an introduction, they have a, and then the seven cycles and a kind of conclusion. Yeah. And that. Yeah, there were three scenes in the sixth seal. Yeah. Yeah. So there were three scenes in the sixth seal. Messed that up twice, I'm not going to try it a third time three parts of the sixth seal. And we're going to find there are going to be three parts in the sixth trumpet as well. All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of the Revelation and the picture of glory that we see revealed there. We thank you for the wonderful scope of that picture to think about the glory of heaven, the gathering of the church, the volume of praise. Thank you for teaching us also that we can feel like the silence is interminable and that we'll never get through it. We thank you for this wonderful lesson that we will prevail in the end, that you are working your purposes through the suffering of your people to bring them through tribulation and into glory. We pray that you would help us to be patient in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we face, uh, to be filled with the assurance that you hear and answer the prayers of your people and their suffering, 
and that you're coming soon in glory to take away our suffering and to bring us a kind of rest that we have never known. We look forward to that day. We know that when it comes, we'll have We'll be so glad for it that it will seem like we waited so little time for it, but now as we wait, it seems so long. So give us patience and help us to follow after our Savior who had a clear sight of the joy that was set before him and that which allowed him to endure his cross and even despise its shame. And help us to follow him in that and know that as he went through his cross, which ended in his crowning, so we will find that too if we follow after him. So build us up in faith that we might follow him. May we give you all the glory. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thanks for coming.